Well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, Let me pray as we get started. Father, uh, as Ryan prayed, uh, reorder our loves this morning. Help us to see you. Help us to see ourselves more clearly. And may we be people who follow you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a couple years ago, my family and I decided to go camping. Uh, and rather, we live, as Ryan said, down in Colorado Springs. A lot of times we go camping down in West Cliff area, if you know where that is. And we decided, hey, we're, let's mix it up. Let's go, let's go outside of Aspen. And so we, we'd load up the car and uh, load up the dog and load up the girls and all that stuff and get on the road and we're driving. And uh, I'll run through just a little geography of Colorado. If it's unfamiliar to you, it doesn't matter at all. Um, but uh, driving and we're taking the back state roads because we're coming from the south to Aspen and we're going to go over Independence Pass and and we drive to uh, Buena Vista, and then we're going north out of there up to Twin Lakes. And there's this sign that says, Independence Pass is closed. And uh, this might give a little too much information into my psyche, but I saw that sign, and my first reaction was, that sign is wrong. There's no way Independence Pass is closed. Like, Gabe, it's a highway sign. Why would they put that there? But we keep going anyway, and we get to Twin Lakes, and we turn off to go over Independence Pass, and there's like a police car there, and another sign that says Independence Pass is closed. But uh, crucially, there's no one standing in the road to stop us. And so we're like, well, let's keep going. And so we keep going. And my wife is like Googling on her phone with a little reception she can get. Like, what's happened? Why is Independence Pass closed? And it turns out they had shut down I-70. And um, all the trucks and all the traffic said, hey, we, we know how to get around here. And all the trucks were going over Independence Pass through Aspen to get around the shutdown on I-70. And then Colorado Department of Transportation said, hey, we can't. We can't let that happen. Uh, all those trucks on, in this fragile mountain environment, uh, the fragile Aspeners who live up there, all that sort of thing, we can't let that happen. So um, they shut down Independence Pass. We figure that out, but while we're ready to drive up it, and now we're kind of looking around as we're getting closer of like, well, maybe that's a camping spot. Maybe we could go there, just looking at places on the side of the road. And then we come to one man wearing an orange vest, standing in the middle of the road. And he holds up his hand, and uh, I, I pull up and roll down the window, and he's like, what you doing? I was like, we're going just, just the, the other side of Independence Pass. We're going to camp. And he says, well, you know, Independence Pass is closed. And I said, we're not even going into Aspen. We won't bother them. Like, just let us go over Independence Pass to where we can go camping. And he kind of looks in and he peers into the car and it's my wife uh, and our kids. And it's very clear we're going camping as you look into the car. And he kind of goes, well, have fun. 
And we're like, yes. And so I roll up the window and I like peel out of there before he changes his mind. And we're flying up and go up the valley. And then we start to go up Independence Pass. And we are the only car, the only people that we can see on one of the most beautiful passes in Colorado. And we go up the first switchback. And what's standing there? But like a group of mountain goats. And we're like, girls, look at the mountain goats. And we stop and watch them as they cross the road and all of that stuff. And we're looking back down the valley and like the sun's coming through the clouds and it's gorgeous and bald eagles are like waving to us as we come by and it's just fantastic and 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 we're going up and there's this sense I had of like what sort of place do we live in like what sort of place is this that we get to live in this amazing like sacred spiritual just feel the significance of it uh, i would say one of the most beautiful passes in colorado and thus one of the most beautiful places in the world that we're driving up and and that question of what sort of space do we live in is really asking about identity of where we are. And I think Genesis chapters 1 and 2 speak to the identity of the world. A lot of times we look at these first two chapters in the Bible and we're like, well, how did the world get made and Big Bang and evolution and that sort of thing? And I think Genesis 1 and 2 are actually saying, no, let me tell you about the identity of the world. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see the world was made in seven days. This is the first chapter of the Bible, how the world gets made. God makes it in seven days. And then at the end of that making, he puts an image in it, and that image is humanity. And if you're reading this as an ancient Israelite, this is going to trigger something else in you because all the, all the cultures around you have temples. And what you would do if you were building a temple is you would build it and then you would have a dedication ceremony. And how long would that dedication ceremony last? Seven days. And at the end of that dedication ceremony, you would put an idol in, the, in that temple. Idol and image are the same word in Hebrew. And so if you're an ancient Israelite reading this Genesis account, this is triggering something deeper. This is triggering something about the identity of the world saying, oh, we live in a temple. We live in a sacred space where God dwells with people. And it's telling us something deep about the identity and how things are meant to be. And God says this world is good. He says this world is tov, which we'll get back to later. And then in Genesis chapter 2, as the story goes on, uh, God starts to talk about the identity of humanity. And in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 15, this is where we're going to zero in for a second. Uh, God has made humanity or at least one human. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God 
took the man, or in Hebrew you would say took the Adam, which is the, the word for human. God took the human and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The word work in Hebrew is the word avad. Say avad. Hey, you know one word in Hebrew. Um, and, and, and that can mean work, like I go to work. It often gets translated cultivate. Like when you cultivate something, you're bringing the best out of it, right? Like you can picture uh, the, the Adam is put in a garden and you can picture like if you're just in a forest, like, yeah, there's some cool stuff there. But if you're in a garden, you're like taking the apple trees and pruning them and bringing all the fruitfulness out of it. You're planting uh, bushes where they go and all this sort of stuff and getting the most life out of something that you can. And so work can mean to cultivate. It can mean to work. It can mean to serve sometimes. And it can mean to worship. And so uh, not that... Not that the Adam is worshiping the garden, but worshiping through his work. And then he's also told uh, to take care of it. And this is the Hebrew word shamar. Say shamar. So avad and shamar. This is what the Adam is told to do. And shamar can mean to take care of. It can mean to guard. It can mean to watch. And it can mean to keep. So those are some different ways that that word gets translated. And those two words, avad and shamar, then get used as uh, later as, as we see the story go on for the priests in Israel. The priests, as they have the temple, they are told to avad and shamar in the temple. Avad and shamar, the like physical space of the temple, and avad and shamar, uh, the, the community that comes and worships in the temple. And so what we have is in Genesis chapter 1, God is laying out a temple. And in Genesis chapter 2, God is putting a priest in his temple. And what does a priest do? Well, a priest avads and shamars. A priest um, represents God to the world and represents the world to God. It's like we have creator up here and creation here. And the Bible is saying in the middle is humanity who exhibits traits of the creator. And, and uh, this would have been shocking language to an ancient Israelite because all the cultures around Israel at this time said, what are humans for? Oh, humans are meant to be slaves to the gods. That's what they're for. And God says, no, 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 no. Listen to this story. You are meant to be my representatives. You are meant to be my priest in a holy temple. Look, the whole world is my temple where my presence is. And you are meant to represent that as you avad and shamar. And the story goes on. The Lord God commanded the Adam... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Hebrew here actually is, uh, it doesn't say you are free to eat. It actually has, a, the verb is repeated twice. God says to the Adam, eat, eat 
of any tree. Like, go do it. Go enjoy this creation, but not this one tree, because if you eat from that tree, you will die, die. The word again gets repeated. And we see this, uh, we see God, God command the Adam to live in this way. And as the story goes on, um, the Adam has, uh, there's a, a woman also created Eve. Adam means human, Eve means life. And so we have these two people um, and, and they're living in the garden. And then in Genesis chapter three, a snake comes and tempts them and says, hey, If you eat from that one tree, you're not going to die, die. You will become like God. The snake essentially says, what you eat, what you consume, will change your identity. What you, if you eat this, your identity will be changed and you can control it and become like God. And Adam and Eve eat from that tree. And we find, in one sense, the snake was right. That they don't die, die in the immediate physical sense. They die, die in the sense that they are separated from God's presence. And how Genesis 1 was set up, where all of creation we were meant to experience God's presence, now there is separation and brokenness. And so it's only rare glimpses when we're driving up Independence Pass, or at certain times when we're like, oh, yeah, God's presence is here. A lot of times in life, we don't feel that. And, and as the story goes on, uh, Adam and Eve have sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. And then he says, uh, when God confronts Cain, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And if you've been following the story and the language, am I supposed to shamar my brother? And it's like, yes, you are, but we've missed that and we've lost that. We could say in one sense that Cain consumes his brother's life. Just like Adam and Eve consumed the wrong, the wrong fruit from the wrong tree, looking for a different identity. And I feel that today. I feel the culture of consumption in my own life. I feel that temptation of saying, what can I consume that will give me a new identity? I think the the culture of consumption is this idea that um, my well-being and my identity can be defined by what I consume. And so um, some funny ways that this works out, like have you ever been like drinking a beer or a Coke or something like that, watching a football game, and my family doesn't love football, I watch football, and you know, I'm like drinking a Coke, and then a commercial comes on for Coke, and everybody's happy and having a good time, and I'm like watching the second half of a Broncos game, being like, oh, geez, and I'm like, the, like my experience of consuming this product and what is offered to me from this product are radically different, right? We've, we've probably had those moments. Or you have moments just in terms of what you consume. Like I've had a hard day, um, and I do this too. Like I've had a hard day 
I think I'm going to blow through a pint of ice cream, right? Like, yeah, that's going to make me, uh, will that change my identity or my well-being? Uh, maybe, maybe I'll feel better for a few minutes. Uh, after I eat that ice cream, then I will not feel as good, but it'll feel good for a minute. Um, or more destructively, this happens with alcohol, with, with people we know and in lives around us. Of like, yes, uh, I, I, I will consume this, and that's what will give me my well-being. And it doesn't just have to be with food. It can be with all sorts of things that we can consume. That's why there's terms like retail therapy, right? Like, I'm going to go to the store, and if I just buy some more stuff, that's going to make me feel good for a while. Um, and, and in the U.S., I um, was looking this up this week, in the U.S., last year, the movie industry in the U.S. was about a $6 billion industry. That doesn't include uh, foreign movie sales or anything like that, but $6 billion. We're consuming lots of movies. Movies are fun to consume. The self-storage industry, where you drive by and you see you can rent a place for a month or for however long, is over six times that. It's a $40 billion a year industry so that we can buy stuff and buy stuff and then store it. And, and we see the effects of this sometimes like in the environment and the way that we just consume things and eat things up. And you, you may care deeply about our environment and say, gosh, we are just destroying that, destroying creation that we were meant to work and keep. And what we miss is the fact that the way that the environment has been damaged is also true of our own hearts when we are trying to consume our well-being and identities through what we can buy. Well, not long after the iPhone came out, they did a study, and um, they took devout religious people, and they, they showed them different iconography, different things like that, um, of religious images, uh, different prayers, different things like that. And then they paid attention what's lighting up in their brains as, as they show those things. And then they did the same thing with Apple fanatics of people who love following Apple products. And they said the same exact areas in people's brains lit up. Like we are worshiping what we can buy. And, and uh, not long ago, I've been working with a life coach, different things like that. And, and actually, I brought this up. I said, hey, my phone... I sometimes feel way too trapped with this thing. And he said, you know what? He said, I work with clients all the time. And this comes up every single time I work with somebody. We are addicted to what we can consume on our phones, to the identities that we can build on social media, to scrolling through. We call it doom scrolling sometimes, right? Like, how can I just keep consuming and finding the next thing? Maybe that will make me feel okay. And then, and then back to sports, um, 
Like, I, I love watching sports. It's fun. Uh, spend time on a Saturday or Sunday watching football. But we see, too, that that gives us an identity that we can consume. And we see this really simply when, when and I do this, I'm like, we won. Like, I had anything to do with the sports team winning. Like, we won. And then you're like, we lost. Oh. But one of the saddest things is that uh, with Google that they can now see what happens in a specific sports market uh, after that team wins or loses. And they looked at this with the NBA Finals a few years ago. And when a team lost, in the hours after the NBA Finals, searches for pornography in that market skyrocketed. I didn't get my identity hit from sports. I've got to find it through something else that I can consume. And when we try to build our well-being and identities off of something other than God, we die, die. My question this morning is what are you trying to consume? Or to put it another way, if something doesn't pop immediately to mind, what's consuming you? Because the things that we try to consume end up consuming us, don't they? And, and I think of those things, and I think of, like, the big three are often money, sex, and power. And we talked some about just money and and attaining things, and sex, and power, I, I look at that, and I'm like, well, I'm not, like, power hungry. Like, I'm, I'm not out there, like, how can I have more power? But where I look for power is in relationships. I look for power in relationships, for people to think well of me, for people to like me, um, and I just eat that up of like, oh, you like me and think well of me. That's what I'll consume and make me feel okay. That will be my well-being and my identity. When the pandemic started in 2020, I, as Ryan mentioned, I work for Young Life, and I work in our communications department. Um, and you can remember like March, April, May 2020, Basically, I was sending communications every day, like, wear masks, don't wear masks, do distance, don't social distance, all of those sorts of things. You remember the very clear guidance we got um, in the early months of 2020. And so all of a sudden, like, my work was just ramping up. And I'm like, okay, what's the message today? What are we going to do today? Okay. And just working and working and working and realized, hey, people are telling me what a great job I'm doing. This is nice. And then in Young Life, we had kind of a series of like PR crises and things like that. And I'd be on calls and then be answering emails and then be on calls. And like people are noticing me and telling me what a great job I'm doing. And I just keep doing that and keep doing that. And for 18 good solid months, I was just going and going and grinding and grinding. And a year ago from today, I was in the hospital because I had numbness on one side of my body. And, and uh, 
they, they did scans of my brain and my heart, and they said, hey, uh, we see things that are wrong with both of these. And in the, in, the, in the years since, I've continued to talk to doctors, and they're like, we can't tell exactly what's wrong, that sort of thing. And I said, well, what about stress? Could stress cause this? Could this idea that I'm just trying to consume what people think of me more and more cause this? And the doctor said, oh, yeah, stress for sure plays a role in this. When you seek your identity outside of God, you will die, die. We've been talking about the way of Tov. Or not we, I haven't. This is my first day talking about the way of Tov. Uh, But the way of Tov being the way that's good. Uh, Tov meaning good, how God originally created creation and said it is Tov, it is good. And this means it is functional. Uh, It's both, uh, it's qualitative, yes, but it's functional. It works like it should work. It's producing fruit like it should produce fruit. And the way of Tov is not a way that's of consumption. The way of Tov is not a way that says, how can I get more? But it's a way of participation. And I would say the opposite of consumption is not abstinence. A lot of times we think, okay, I'm consuming this thing. All I have to do is say no. In the 1980s, this was uh, a lot for my generation, there was a, a major campaign to say no to drugs. And they would have commercials where they like cracked an egg and fried it and said, this is your brain on drugs and all of those sorts of things. <laughs> and, uh, and scholars have since looked at that campaign, which is just focused on saying no. And they've said at its very best, that campaign was completely ineffective. And they said at its worst that campaign may have actually increased drug usage in the United States because the opposite of consumption is not simply saying no. The opposite of consumption is saying, how can I participate in what God is doing? How can I avad and shamar in God's work? That is the way of Tov and what we are originally made for that we see in Genesis chapter 2. But in the Old Testament, the way of Tov is hard to come by. If you look at the stories, we mentioned Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? If you follow the stories of the Old Testament, it's essentially a series of people not living the way of Tov. Essentially a series of people saying, I'm just going to take and consume and not worry about participating in what God is doing. And God eventually creates the priesthood in ancient Israel. 
And this is like, hey, all of humanity didn't work. We're going to create this priesthood in ancient Israel, and they will serve in the temple where my presence is. And priests, you again are meant to represent me to the people and represent the people to me. And we see the priests do things like essentially have sex slaves and things like that, where the priests are just consuming as well, and they don't live the way that they're called to live. They don't participate. And it's not until Jesus comes on the scene that we start to see this way of Tov lift out. And Jesus does things like he, he cares for people. Uh, he feeds people. He heals people. He teaches people. And he's on the scene showing people what this way is, not consuming but participating. She's saying, this is what's God doing. And, and thus Jesus is constantly saying, what my father's doing, that's what I'm doing. Because I'm participating rather than consuming. And in the last prayer that we have recorded uh, of Jesus, which is in John 17, one of the things that Jesus is doing is, one, he's praying for his disciples, and he's actually praying for us. He's saying, I pray for everybody who will eventually believe in my name. And he says, and of my disciples, what have I done? I have kept them. He uses that priestly language. I am living this out. And in ancient Israel, the priests who served in the temple where God's, God's presence was, at the center of that was sacrifice. At the center of that was the priest taking animals and sacrificing them, and that always pointed to something deeper. That always pointed to the priest participating. Animals were always symbolic. But just as that didn't work out, we look then to Jesus and we say, oh, Jesus he offered himself. He gave of himself as a sacrifice, not consuming, but participating and offering himself. And so we see that with Jesus and, and that moment of sacrifice initiates a new priesthood. Jesus does that, and then we see the Spirit come in the days after. And, and one of Jesus' followers, Peter, uh, Peter's kind of a knucklehead, but that's okay. We still like him. Uh, Peter, uh, we pick up how he plays on this idea of priesthood. And Peter in uh, 1 Peter, uh, which was not a very imaginatively named book, um, but in 1 Peter, he is writing to what he calls a group of exiles. And this would have been in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. So he's writing to a group of people uh, in modern-day Turkey. And most likely, um, when he calls these people exiles, it probably referred to their status in society, that they were not people who were fully embraced by Roman society at the time. They were outsiders, and so Peter's writing to them, and here is what he says. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. 
And Peter says, as you come to him, him being Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a few things happening here. Um, First, it says Jesus is a living stone. So all of a sudden we realize, okay, we're dealing with metaphors here. Jesus is a living stone. He's been rejected by humans. He's been killed by humans, but chosen by God and, and has been resurrected and precious to God. And we also, like living stones, okay, so we're like Jesus, are being built into a spiritual house. What is a spiritual house? Oh, it's a temple, yeah. We, along with Jesus, he's the first, Peter will go on to say he's the cornerstone. Uh, We, with him, are being built into a temple. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where God said, I have made the whole world a temple, but now it's been separated. My plan to set it right is to make you all together, not just one of us, but you all into a temple. I'm not just going to snap my fingers and change the world. I'm going to do it in participation with you. You are the temple. You are the sign of my presence in the world. Can you believe this? Like, it doesn't feel like it, right? Like, most days I'm like, well, I'm just trying to keep my shoes tied and not look like a fool. I am God's presence in the world. You all, all of us here together are God's tangible presence in the world. His inbreaking back into the world is happening right here and right now. And he goes on to say, Peter goes on to say, you're, you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are both the temple and you are the priests. You are both the, the presence of God in this world and you are the priests who represent me to the world, who show the world what I am, who show my love and my grace to the world. Offering Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Offering sacrifices by and through the Spirit of God. Through the model that Jesus has laid out for us. To Avad and to Shamar. That is what Peter is laying out. And you'll note that to these exiles, he is essentially giving them a new identity. He's saying, yeah, I know in Roman society, you're kind of cast off over here, but here is your new identity. You're not meant to be down here. You're not exiled uh, in a way that you're just meant to be cast off. You're not, uh, in ancient Israel would have been, you're not slaves to the gods. You are the temple of God. You are the royal priesthood of God, meant to participate in what he is doing, meant to represent him. And so that's a holy summons to us, because I think those words echo down to us to say, how am I being a priest? How am I showing God's love and grace? Am I bringing it into spaces at work? 
Am I going to bring it uh, to people that I disagree with? Am I going to bring it when I'm online, on social media? Am I showing God's love and grace? That's the way of participation rather than the way of consumption. That's the way of tov. This past week, I'm going to get political for a moment. This past week, we had elections. You may or may not be aware of that. Um, and and I, I think it's timely because uh, this past week, I know my wife and I, we've talked about the elections, that sort of thing. You may be excited. You may be disappointed. You may be uh, some combination of both regarding the elections. But God's temple did not start in Rome. God's temple, God is not saying, let me reestablish my presence on earth beginning in Washington, D.C. or beginning in the capital down the street in Denver, Colorado. God says, I'm reestablishing my presence here and now through the church, through people who participate with me. As God inaugurated his new temple, He did it through Jesus in a Roman colony far from the centers of power on an empty hill that hardly anybody knew about or paid attention to. Certainly not those in power. And then when he sent his spirit, he sent it to a room of frightened disciples who didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen next. Far from the centers of power. And he is bringing his temple here and now and this week far from the centers of power in our everyday humdrum and simple lives. And I pray that we have the eyes to see it. He is going to bring his temple this week in ways that we say, hey, family, let's get together and let's not have these around as we sit down. Or friends, let's set our iPhones down. Let's set our phones down and just be together and and be God's temple together. And maybe that's not the words we will use, but God is bringing his temple through decisions like that to participate rather than consume. God is going to bring his temple through men and women who say, gosh, I am so sick of being addicted to pornography or food or alcohol or whatever it is, and I am going to get counseling for it and get real healing for it so I can participate in what God is doing rather than continuing to consume because it's killing me. God is going to bring his temple through through moms and dads saying, gosh, I'm going to put notes and love notes in my kids' lunch boxes because when they're eating, I want them to remember their love for me. God is going to bring his temple through you at work this week saying, gosh, I could fire off an angry email because I am tired of how this person is manipulating me and I want power in the relationship. But instead, I am going to pick up the phone and call them and try to find reconciliation with them. That is the way that God is bringing his temple in our lives today. God is bringing his temple right now. He's going to bring it uh, in a few minutes when we're done with church and we're asking and talking about how each other's weeks are and actually listen and connect rather than just say, what can I get from these people? God is bringing his temple in our midst. And the question is, Where 
is God inviting you to participate? The way of Tov is a way of participation in what God is doing. May we have the eyes to see it. Let me pray for us. Father God, we admit that we are so enticed by things we can consume that we think will give us well-being and identity. Forgive us. Change us. Reorder our hearts and our longings. We know that our deepest longings are actually for you. We know that our deepest longings are actually to participate in the life that you give. We know that our deepest longings are to be part of your ongoing work in this world. Open our eyes to where we can participate. Open our eyes to new things that we can say yes to. Open our eyes to be people who avad and shamar. And give us the strength through your spirit. Give us the community. Thank you for this community. God, we once more offer our lives to you. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.